Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, as a dialect coach in Hollywood, Samara Bay helps actors sound seamlessly like someone they're not. Think Ruth Naga from Ireland, sounding like someone from rural Virginia in the film Loving. But Bay's new book is all about sounding exactly as you are, embracing the pitch, the ums and likes, and the upspeak, and in that process, challenging our assumptions of what power sounds like. Have you ever tried or even been told to change how you speak to sound more authoritative? We want to hear from you after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have you ever been told if you just lowered your voice or stopped saying like, you'd sound more authoritative? It's that kind of advice, no matter how well-intentioned, that speech coach Samara Bay wants us to reconsider. Bay writes in her new book, Permission to Speak, that generations of Americans have associated power with the slow, booming speech of male politicians and news anchors. And it's time we check that bias and who it serves. Bay works with actors and politicians and runs workshops to support a new, diverse sound of power. Samara Bay, welcome to Forum. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. Could you tell the story of when you were in grad school for acting (laughs) and actually lost your voice for some time? Oh, my gosh. So I was in my early 20s and uh, had gotten into this graduate acting program on the East Coast that I was, you know, desperate to get into. So thrilled to be there. And halfway through, I lost my voice and I wasn't sick and it lasted for months. And I finally got myself to an ear, nose and throat doctor. And I don't know if anyone listening has had this experience. I had this little uh, tiny camera up my nose and down the back of my throat. It captured the image of my vocal cords. And it was clear from that that I had vocal nodules, which is the kind of thing that forms on these lovely, you know, delicate cords of ours, if we are speaking in a way that is slightly different than what our bodies, in this case, optimum pitch is, right? Optimum way of speaking. And indeed, I got back to class that day and, you know, I'd missed the morning session and the guy who ran the whole program stopped everything. Everybody turned to me and he said, so what's the diagnosis? And I said, you know, painfully, uh, vocal nodules, I I have to go on vocal rest. 
And he said, ha, huh, just as I thought, bad usage. Which was like, I mean, it's such a strange term, right? Obviously, he's right on some level. I had been, quote unquote, using my voice wrong. But the idea of him lobbing that at me was clearly in order to make it clear that I was the victim, but I was also the perpetrator. Hmm. Like, for shame that you sabotaged yourself. Yeah. Well, well, first, what were you trying to sound like that wasn't your optimum you know, or body's perfect pitch. I didn't know until I did some <laughs> sort of processing and went to a speech language pathologist in Santa Cruz, actually, my hometown, uh, over a, a Christmas break where I started to actually work on finding my voice again. And with her help, I figured out that at some point, probably a decade earlier, I had started speaking habitually, just a tiny bit below my body's optimum pitch. So a little lower, right? Not all the way to Elizabeth Holmes, but something that gave me a sense of power in the moment and it was below the level of conscious thought. And it and worked in a way, you know, until it didn't. It worked. And that's what's so interesting and probably why you found that professor's comment um, bad usage so jarring. Why was it working? What is this standard that you were trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't know at the time, but now I can name it. There are so many messages we get from the culture at large, from the media, from television and film. Certainly, if we take a class in the corporate world on, you know, executive presence, quote unquote, the message is very clear. A lower voice will be taken more seriously. A voice that doesn't have a huge amount of pitch range, which can code for, you know, unhinged, uh, similar with emotions. And if you Google how to sound authoritative, you will see all of that written out in plain English. 75% your regular pace, please. And hmm. then I can't help but wonder about the moments that all of us have leaned in when we've heard someone speak. Uh, you know, the Grammys just happened. Those speeches that made us want to share them, to make a speech go viral, whether it's in the realm of entertainment or politics or activism or business, they aren't following any of those rules. What do you think gives those speeches their power then? I think there is a certain um, confidence and bravery and I have to say, of course, permission involved in showing up like a version of yourself in those high stakes moments that you recognize where you're centering your own joy, whether it's a, obviously a, a funny moment or not, but, but it, it including your own sense of well-being inside of what you're saying, uh, mm -hmm. actually changes the way that you speak. Honoring that every single one of us, from a linguistic standpoint, sounds like the life we've lived, unless we do hard work to hide that. Mm, the and the final speak. part of it is an emotional honesty, a real, you know, I come from the theater world, obviously, and I coached a lot of actors in Hollywood. And that thing that we all know when we watch somebody on a TV show or in a movie and we fall in love with them, whether they're playing a role or not, it's that moment where they're vulnerable, where they are totally emotionally open and they say, I care. And the same thing is true when we're speaking in our high stakes moments. You really make the case for just how it, it benefits us just personally, thinking even about your own health issues and then also about this ability to really connect with others because we're really being honest and 
it sounds like very much kind of aware and holding our own our own power and our own truth in those moments. What is the social benefit of speaking like that? You know, I think in our day-to-day lives, it's complicated, right? And um, for for anybody who already knows that you are marginalized or you feel marginalized in a work context, right? I am not coming down from on high irresponsibly saying uh, who cares about the social norms in your workspace sound like yourself at home. I'm not. We have to stay safe. And there's realities there. We have to keep our job if money is on the line, right? But I am saying that in our higher stakes moments, when we have the chance to present something close to our heart, when we're pitching an idea to people who could fund us or could vote for us, that mundane way of being that we have practiced our whole lives to sort of hide our weird (laughs) isn't actually going to make the impact ever, ever that Mm -hmm. we want to make. And so practicing that version of us that actually we do enjoy around our favorite people and wondering, not practicing that, but I I should say noticing it, you know, catching ourselves in the moments when we are free, when we don't have anything to prove. And wondering just with a little, a little bit of curiosity, is this version of me somebody I can bring into those high stakes moments when how I talk about what I care about will affect the outcome? You also say that when we change the story of what power sounds like, we change who has power. What do you mean by that? You know, part of this work came about from working with women who are running for office for the 2018 and then the 2020 midterms, you know, Mm -hmm. a bunch of first-time candidates, mostly women. And I began to realize that what breaks my heart the most about the world, (laughs) it's a pretty big statement, is that the wrong people are in charge. And pretty much everything we can point to that with, of course, extremely exciting exceptions. And why are the wrong people in charge? A number of reasons, but from the voice perspective, I'd like to offer that they sound the part, that there are thousands of years of history that say, here's who the public has been built for, and here's how anybody who stands on their own convictions in the public should sound if they want to get taken seriously. And we've all breathed those shoulds in. And I'm curious about getting clear on that story, calling BS on that story, naming who that story has served and who it hasn't. And of course, a part of that is also noticing our own biases, because we're not just the speakers in this story, we're also the listeners. Yeah. We're talking with Samara Bay, speech coach and author of the new book, Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, starting with you. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you ever tried to change how you speak to sound more powerful, more authoritative? What happened? Have you been told you don't speak correctly for using hedge words or speaking too fast or too softly or or maybe using vocal fry? Or maybe there are aspects of the way you speak that you would like to change, but Mm -hmm. you would like to change because you would like to change it. Mm -hmm. You can always ask for tips. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or give us a call at 866-733-6786. So, Samara, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but... Uh, you you want society to be able to kind of rethink what power sounds like, but it's not there yet, right? We are yes. in many ways still communicating into 
that system that has conferred power on sort of, I think I, I said in the the intro, sort of the low, booming, declarative mm -hmm. voice, that standard that can be held by the very people who determine whether or not you get ahead. So how do we deal with that? You know, I'll answer this in two ways. One is, especially with your with your um, call out to listeners, um, you know, if you have picked up habits that help you play small, that help you hedge and be indirect, uh, I'd like to honor from a linguistic standpoint that we've picked up every one of those habits for a reason. It's one of my favorite facts about sociolinguistics. It's a it's an anti-shaming <laughs> campaign I'm on, really, to say that those <laughs> ums and uhs and likes have served us in some way. And now the question is, are some of those habits ones we've outgrown or that we're interested in getting, you know, wiggly around and finding new ways in that, that feel, you know, more exciting or more powerful to us. And so some of that is part of the answer to your question that, yes, there are people who hold power, quote unquote, who have biases around voice. But every single one of those people and every single one of us is actually on a path of evolving how we sound and how we listen, I think, at any moment. I mean, hang out with a new group of friends and you start to pick up their habits. This is how, this is why dialects exist actually anywhere in the world. There's an us versus them sort of tribalism and our, our bodies are really attuned and really interested actually on a level that we're not even conscious of in mirroring who we spend time with, who we want to spend time with, and honestly, who we love. And then the other part of your question is that yes, in some cases, it's on us to try to fit into the, you know, system that we're working inside of, or to try to change. And then partly it's that system. And whether or not they're interested in, in changing, uh, I will say there's a lot of DEI work going on. And that is because there is a commitment on some level to questioning biases. And I'd love voice bias to be part of that. We'll have more with Samara Bay after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking today about the power of speech and why it shouldn't be limited to certain ways of speaking. We're talking with Samara Bay, 
a dialect coach, a speech coach, an author, who's written the book Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, starting with you. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Have you ever tried to change the way you speak to sound more authoritative? Have you been told you don't speak correctly for using hedge words or vocal fry or speaking too fast or too softly? Do you think that we need to change how we view those things? You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. A lot of different opinions coming in. Uh, Noel tweets, I am a feminist, but I cannot listen to vocal fry because it makes me feel like the speaker is not sure about what they are saying. Maybe there will be so many people finding this as acceptable that those who hate it will be outnumbered like all us Gen Xers always are. Another listener tweets, Upspeak, vocal fry, dropped medial tees are like nails on a chalkboard, distracting and undermine the credibility of the speakers. These aberrations don't need to be normalized. To not pronounce the first T in interest is incorrect. Vocal fry is an effect, as was my intentional adoption of Upspeak in junior high. And then another listener tweets, Arg, what is vocal fry and up talk? All right, listener, we will answer that question because tomorrow, one of the things that I did find new to me in your book was, was how you explained that the speech patterns that are often most maligned actually contain, in addition to what you were saying earlier, that there are very good reasons that we use them, they also contain an underappreciated power. So... Can we start with some of these things that uh, that this listener wants to know what they are? So, what is uptalk? Can you oh demonstrate? Gosh. This is uptalk so delightful, for us? and I love the vitriol of those responses because they are such a great example of two things. Two things. One, <laughs> that when we do have these habits, I'm about to demonstrate. Uh, we we do turn off our listeners, and that is a reason, a mm, red flag for for uh, lack of a better word, to to note that they may be habits we've outgrown. And two, perhaps um, this, the, the, some of the people who've just responded with things like the T and internet becoming internet um, are actually just trying to uphold standards that were created in a, quite honestly, white supremacist colonial system that really, we don't need the T in internet. And I bet that that same person says House of Representatives instead of House of Representatives and doesn't even notice it. So a lovely opportunity to perhaps observe your own biases at work. So <clears throat> with that said, um, vocal fry is when we uh, don't breathe quite enough and, uh, and or the energy of our thoughts starts out strong, but then weakens by the end. So it, it'll sound like we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and then all of a sudden it's in our throat and it sounds like this. Some people talk like this the entire time. What's valuable about it is that we have no pitch range and pitch range codes for vulnerability. So if we're not showing any pitch range, we are hiding whether or not we care. That is a defense mechanism. It's hard on some listeners, and mm. it keeps us safe. One of the things I liked was your point that you can't do vocal fry unless your vocal cords are relaxed. Yeah, it has, a, it has an element of chill to it, right? It has a relaxed quality, and that's because, like, literally your vocal cords are so slowly vibrating that you can't sound tight. <laughs> Well, speaking of the double standard, you also wrote about how Ira Glass copped to the fact that he uses vocal fry regularly. 
in a This American Life episode, but that he is also so surprised about the complaints that he gets about the voices of young female reporters on his show who use vocal fry, but no one had ever complained about his. This is how we know this is a story, right? These are cultural myths. Women are maligned for any vocal, you know, quote-unquote aberrations from the quote-unquote standard in a way that men are not. So it is not the sounds. And in fact, I would offer lovingly to the person who wrote in saying that they can't stand women's voices with vocal fry. Can you stand a man's voice with vocal fry? I bet you can. What is Uptalk? Can you demonstrate that? Yes, I can. So Uptalk is, uh, or Upspeak, um, is yeah, upspeak, when we, yeah. they're both, they're both used as is um, high rise terminal. That's the official linguistic term. It's it's when we go up and pitch at the end of our thought. Most of us do it in the middle of a, of a long thought, in the middle of a clause. So we'll say, because of this, this. And that this is what we're doing. It's a swoop up. It's a, it's a tag that we're not done yet. The problem is that when we do that habitually at the end end, at the real where the period should be, it confuses some ears, right? But it is also a habit and it's a millennial and Gen Z habit. So of course it gets, you know, maligned for being uh, youthful in the opposite of power. The example would be if I said, uh, my name is Samara. Hmm. So... We all recognize, actually, I think, that that is going up, but it's also building in the question of, have you heard this name before into the statement of my name, which one might suggest is efficient, <laughs> but it doesn't give you a sense of finality. And uh, my dream really for anybody listening who actually is wondering if, if they use uh, Upspeak too much is to become aware of it so you can use it and then also not. Uh, I have an example in the book of um, an exercise using a fake ball where you really try to figure out what the swoop is of your own voice, up, down, which can usually get you into vocal fry, or out. And those three are, I mean, you know, I'd love to suggest no shame in any of them, right? This is something I'm I'm really uh, adamant about, but they are tools and they do something to your listener. And the more tools you have, That's really interesting. So when you say be aware of it so you can use it, what you're essentially saying is you get to be in control of how and when you use Upspeak. You can be intentional about it because it has a power. And I guess as you were saying, that power is sort of an inviting power, asking a question, inviting people to engage. Another power that it has that all of these... um... They're called, they're called feminine markers. Uh, another power that these feminine markers have is uh, signaling that you're in an in-group. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I said earlier, we sound like who we love. If our friends say like a lot, we'll probably say like a lot. We have the ability to let some of that go. If we are doing the work to really believe that our ideas belong in the space, we will likely hedge less. But also when we're hanging out with friends, if we sound like them... That's, you know, evolution at work. Like, yay, celebration. <laughs> well, here's a listener pointing out how things can be used. This listener tweets, remember Margaret Thatcher was not taken seriously until she changed her speech. Elizabeth Holmes learned from this and changed her speech as well and was able to bamboozle 
gullible, mostly men to fund her Exactly. No, exactly. And I talk about both of them in the book, and I I include myself in that category, right? Because I lowered my voice as well, whether I did it, you know, intentionally and manipulatively or not. But those are excellent cultural examples of it working in the short term. And what I'm interested in is a long-term change of the story, because you said, what does it mean that when we change what power sounds like, we change who has it, right? This is what it means. If we want the same people to be in charge and the same powers that be to uphold the status quo, then yes, we keep chasing the standard, period. That's the goal. But if that's not the goal, if we want to change what power sounds like so we change who has it, if we would like to have better leadership in the future who reflects our actual lived experience, who has an emotionally rich and honest life... Yeah, or even a more equitable distribution. Exactly. A a more diverse future of more diverse voices with more diverse ideas as well as cultures, then this is our opportunity to start to name those biases. Well, let me go to caller Leanna. Hi, Leanna in San Francisco. You're on. Hi. um, I'm really passionate about this topic, and I'm so glad you all are talking about it. I wanted to share my story about being a young woman in tech especially as a young Asian American in tech who has a quote-unquote baby face. And Mm. in the first decade of my career, I was often mistaken as the intern or, um, you know, someone, a new grad, even though Mm -hmm. I was like a senior level person. Um, And it it really uh, proliferated into everything else uh, in my life in terms of like using my voice to sound older or um, to change people's perception of me because I couldn't change the way that I look. I could change the way that I dressed, but my voice was the only way for me to convince people that I deserved to be there. Um, But then it sort of proliferated elsewhere into that I wasn't being who I felt I was. I was being what I thought people should think of me as. Mm -hmm. And it took me changing jobs. It took me a decade into my 30s to be like, this is who I am normally, and I, I don't want to act a certain way just so that people will take me seriously. Leanna, thanks. Yeah, for sharing that. Samara. That is such a – I love that story. I mean, I hate it for you, and I love that you shared it. And that arc is so familiar. Um What has happened or what gets to happen maybe for many of us is that we play into the system. We play into the version that we need to be in order to get taken seriously when we have no power. And when we start to notice that we have any platform at all, any power, any privilege, then the question is, how do I spend it? How do I start to actually model a kind of leadership that I would prefer? How do I find a version of myself that I can perform that feels like me all day long. And yeah, I'm a realist and I'm a coach and it is irresponsible to say, do that before you're ready. Do that in those rooms that are scary or unsafe or where, you know, you're fighting to get the tiniest bit of power. But be aware that this is a long game. And when you start to get, mm, angry that's usually how my clients are feeling under the surface fear a little inner fear a stuckness that's usually a sign that it's an opportunity to re-examine the way you're showing up it reminds me of what you were saying about your own story with trying to lower your pitch was that it works until it doesn't and it's really yeah. important to know when it doesn't for you and and, and why Thank you, Liana. Another listener writes, I find there's a difference between how I speak at work, which is white dominant, and with friends and family, 
where hedging is used to gather consensus, not mm -hmm. further a viewpoint. Can we speak a bit to the different cultural differences? Oh, that's so interesting that they're applying hedging as a cultural difference. You also yeah. spend a lot of time talking about hedging and hedge words and, and why they can be very useful and what they can convey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hedging, an example of hedging is ways that we speak indirectly, like adding in uh, just or, or whatever, or if you know what I mean, uh, or like. But um, hedging is also, if we zoom out, a way of being indirect in order to put the people around us at ease. So direct speech is actually somewhat controlling, right? Do this. Here's how I feel, period, no upspeak. It's not engaging uh, debate. And then inside of these less controlled spaces, um, and also linguists will say inside of female-only spaces, there is a um, not uh, less of a turn-taking and more of a collaborative, interrupting, adding on, right question mark at the end of thoughts, right? This is engaging uh, conversation as though the conversation is more important than any conversational list. Tina writes, I once tried to tell my boss how angry I was, but I started with, I just want you to know, at an assertive training, they had me say my speech the way I said it, and then say it leaving out just. The power I felt was incredible. <laughs> I, I think this gets at what you were talking about in terms of what feels like you're doing it because you're trying to follow some prescribed idea of how to speak. And when you're doing it because it is a tactic or a strategy that, that serves you, I imagine that feels different in your body. And sort of mm -hmm. Tina is getting at how yeah. they felt powerful. Do you have a description for how that feels? <laughs> It's such a beautiful question. You know, it's it really highlights what I started out this conversation talking about, that the ways in which we interact with, you know, interesting power dynamics on an ongoing basis throughout any given day, it's so complicated. It's so interesting. I mean, psychology meets linguistics meets, you know, work norms. Uh, but how we speak in our more powerful moments when we have the opportunity to speak about things that matter to us or give a speech, like a literal speech. That is when some of our habits that have formed in conversational life, you know, the hedging, won't serve us as well because uh, there's a linguist named um, Dr. Jennifer Coates who, who calls that um, interactive kind of speaking where people are all kind of talking over each other and building the thought together, like a jam session. But when you're the one presenting, it's no longer a jam session. You're, it's a, you're a soloist. And taking the justs out, it does feel different. It's like taking that deep breath and allowing the words to come out without any hedging in between because you have decided that you are what power sounds like right where you are and that your ideas deserve to be heard. Let me go to caller Leah in Sunnyvale. Hi, Leah. You're on. Hi. Thank you for um, uh, taking my call. I want to talk about the fact that it's not just um, vocal vocal um, tics or, or, or types or um, pitch or anything, but also with women, we're judged in the way we communicate. I have lost count 
of the number of times in performance reviews where the only negative that I have received or the only caveat, and usually from male managers, mind you, is that my method of communicating is too direct, hmm. that I can appear, you know, intimidating in meetings or, or what have you, whereas if I was a man, this would never come up. We both said, hmm. <laughs> so right? Mara, your thoughts on what Leo's I mean, I have a whole chapter on direct. the <laughs> on the connection between strength and warmth, these two very different energies. And yes, when they don't match, when our strength comes across as, as stronger than our warmth does, it makes people uncomfortable. And then we get to decide, as you surely have, uh, do you care enough to try to adjust? How do I how would I come across warmer without feeling resentment? It's a legit question. And then the other part of it is, no, I don't want to change. This is who I am. And then you get to perhaps introduce the idea of voice bias. I mean, that's part of why I'm, I, I like bringing this mainstream and talking about it. It's uh, the kind of language we can bring to work and say, I noticed in my performance review that you um, referenced this. Is it an actual problem in getting the work done or is it just a stylistic thing? I wonder if there's some voice bias at play there. I just have a different mm. communication style. You brought up that we have these voice biases or voice standards similar to the way that we have beauty standards. And I think for a lot of people, it's easy to sort of see the the unfairness or the, the subjectiveness of beauty standards, but harder with voice standards. Do you think this is just like an area we have not fully, <laughs> fully been aware of like totally. another frontier that we need to tackle i mean right like first of all to say the obvious voices are invisible so it's very hard to as a friend of mine said throw ink on the invisible so that you can see it i mean that's what i'm doing with this book and with these conversations around this and it's wiggly right because i'm coming up against everyone else's voice stories the stories we've all breathed in about what voices we should take seriously whether we fit that description or not well this listener writes vocal chastising extends to words used as well as a woman yeah. in tech a male-dominated industry i was chastised for both being too flowery in my emails and being abrasive we can't <laughs> win Nancy writes, at 16, I played a male part in a school play, discovering then, then that I could project my voice very well in a lower register. In my work as a lawyer, I discovered that speaking in a lower register made me sound not authoritative, but weird. In retirement, hmm. a singing class discovered that I am naturally a high soprano. Huzzah for the authentic <laughs> self. <laughs> We're talking about your authentic voice and using it and redefining what power sounds like with Samara Bay and we'll have more with Samara after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all heard about and seen documented that how we speak matters. So we code switch, we rehearse to be seen as authoritative, worthy of respect, or to be heard. But that can have a negative effect on us, and Samara Bay has documented it in her new book, Permission to Speak, and is urging us to feel permission to sound like ourselves, even if society is not totally ready for us to, because that is one way to change what power sounds like and chip away at bias standards that may keep us inauthentic or locked out. But she also says do it strategically. And you, our listeners, are writing in with your thoughts and questions for Samara about your experiences of feeling pressure to change the way you speak or not giving yourself permission to speak the way that you do. But also if there are aspects of the way that you speak that you feel like you don't control and would like to get control of, you can always ask for tips at 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Jason in Sacramento, you're on. Thanks for waiting, Jason. Hi, Hi thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, my stepson is a 14-year-old who has mosaic Down syndrome, which presents uh, some challenges. And I was just curious if your guest had any tips or comments on, on how we can help him as he develops and, and moves into the world to be taken more seriously and um, kind of um, improve his his. Uh, speech patterns and and um, present more mm. clearly. And I can take my comments off the air. Jason, thanks. Any advice for Jason, Samara? Oh, I so appreciate that. You know, um, my only advice is that there's a real connection between how well we breathe and how well we believe that we deserve to take up space in the world. And most of us have felt that, right? There's a habitual under-breathing that happens. Um, stereotypically for women, you know, we suck in in that area and then our diaphragm just doesn't have the space to sort of actually engage downward and bring in a a huge amount of air into our lungs. Um, I wonder if this is useful to think about for your son, the idea of taking real breaths because you deserve to take up space will affect how you show up, how he shows up, how he speaks, and hopefully how he gets taken seriously. Well, Jason, thanks for the call. Let me go to Niru in Fremont. Hi, Niru. You're on. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Samara, I found your uh, find your uh, speaking very interesting. I wanted to check in with you about immigrants. I'm an immigrant mm-hmm. from India myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I find it curious that immigrants who come into this country who probably share a minority perspective on many counts actually change their accents to reflect the majority, you know, and I, I don't think, I do think I have uh, somewhat of an American accent now after having lived here for many years, but I, I don't think it was conscious, but I do think I speak white. And I just uh-huh. wanted to, wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, you know, I started in a way um, thinking about all this stuff because I was working with English as a second language uh, actors and then also people in the business world. So I'm 
I'm really intimately familiar with um, the, those sorts of negotiations that you're making when you're speaking your non-native language in an English-speaking you know, country that has, quite honestly, extremely well-studied uh, accent bias. So, you know, on a, on a survival level, it makes complete sense that anybody who's having um, trouble being heard will do whatever it takes, whether they're conscious of it or not, to get heard, whether that means on a literal level or on a you know, sort of larger self-actualization level. So, yeah, it's really real. And, um, you know, the other part that's interesting, I think, is um, I hear from a lot of English as a second language people that they get told decades after they've been here, oh, really? You've been here that long? Your accent is so thick. <laughs> and they're like, not sure what to tell you. Um, I speak multiple languages. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, partly I guess I'm here to name that for anybody for whom English is their first language, who's jumping in to, uh, you know, perform their accent biases more than they need to. Um, but also for anyone for whom English is their second language, there are sounds that exist in your native language that do not exist in English and vice versa. And that is the major distinguishing factor between whether people have, uh, you know, trouble speaking American without an accent or who don't. Um, and the other part of it is that there's um, all kinds of interesting cultural stories we have connected to our home country and how much we want on a psychological level to move away from it or retain it. I think you're getting at why we have such complicated relationships with the way that we sound. Uh, it, it also sounds like in, in hearing Nero speaking and, and thinking about the own pressures that I felt or, or my family members felt, mm -hmm. it's just really important to validate why you would adopt a certain way of speaking yes. to begin with. Um, but but speaking of how we have complicated relationships, the listener writes, we have some members of our family who often correct others because they want us to sound educated and speak well and be judged well by others. And I've always wanted to reject that notion. And once finally said that when they, when they correct me when I'm speaking, instead of feeling it helpful and caring, it makes me feel like grammar is more important than what I'm trying to say mm. or convey. Mm. I thought that was a really... A really nice and useful way to think about the effect that we have on people when we are trying to give them what we often think is is friendly advice. Um, this listener writes, tone volume can be used in an aggressive or passive-aggressive way. However, upspeak is just plain annoying since most of us were trained to use that as an indicator of questioning. How can one listen to the speaker if every sentence ends in an upspeak? Erica writes, upspeaking or trailing off a sentence in a low voice along makes it difficult for me to understand what a person is saying. It causes me to stop listening to a program that is otherwise very interesting. Is there a way for me to learn to listen more effectively? I like to use the term listening with more generous ears. You know, if any of us catches ourselves thinking, I can't listen to this person because, we get to have, as with all biases, a second wiser thought, which is curiosity, right? Is there anything I can learn from how I'm listening to this person, how they're showing up in the world? Maybe it's even if you've, you know, listened to this conversation and, and it's rattling around in your brain still, still, maybe it's not even a question of should I or shouldn't I keep this on? Should I or shouldn't I take this person seriously? But it's what 
am I noticing in their voice about how well they are willing to show up or not in these moments? I, I often feel like, and you know, obviously I have the ears I do from years of doing this work, but I often feel like when I'm listening to someone talk, I'm not judging them. I'm truly not. I'm really interested in everybody's own relationship to their voice. But what I am hearing is either their life revealed in their voice or their unwillingness to reveal their life in their voice. And that hiding can come out as monotone. It can come out as mumbling. It can come out as, as you know, more ticks than content. And that, my heart bursts for that. I mean, I'm here for that lived experience that has made it hard to show up whole. Mm. And I also see somebody who's perhaps ready <laughs> to pick up the book, you know, and think about some of this stuff, reckon with their own voice story. Yes, we talked earlier about what it feels like when you are reflecting who you are in your life and your voice. What does it feel like when you're hiding? I mean, I throw that back to the listeners, you know, what does it feel like when, you, when we're hiding? I know for me, I, um, I had a podcast on iHeartRadio back in 2020. And, you know, this is what I'm interested in. I'm like super, super aware that uh, we can do a quote unquote podcast voice that feels fake. And I was committed to not doing that. And yet, in my very first interview, right, and the iHeart Radio offices before the world shut down, and with a rather intimidating guest, I noticed myself, I, I like to call it the generic monster, I noticed myself with this little generic monster on my shoulder, kind of whispering in my ear saying, oh, uh, no, no, that you're too weird. Definitely don't breathe uh, so that you can kind of control this version of yourself that sounds really straightforward and really generic. That's what a powerful person should sound like. And of course, I had to unpack that when I was writing the book. I was like, God, you know, I was going public for the first time, just like my politicians that I coached. And when we go public, when we scale ourselves, it gets wiggly. We realize like, oh, God, I have voice stories I need to reckon with if I really want to show up and make the impact I want to make. Writing is really different. Did you find it hard to give yourself permission to write? <laughs> you know, I did. I did. I, I sold this book in an incredible auction, a 13-way bidding war in March of 2020. And then, uh, of course, I got hit with, oh, dear. <laughs> now I have to actually write this thing. And um, I had just been reading Glennon Doyle's Untamed. And I remember thinking, oh, God, back when I was an English major, I used to notice that I would take on the writing style of whoever I last read. And I don't want to take on the writing style of this incredible author that isn't me. And I, and I worked on that. I worked on that by doing the same work that I do for speaking in public and, and that I offer clients, which is a certain warm-up that really reminds us the version of ourself that we enjoy, that is unique, and that the world... I hope, needs. Samara Bay's book is Permission to Speak, How to Change What Power Sounds Like, starting with you. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Vikram in Mountain View. Hi, Vikram. You're on. Hi. Yeah, um, I'll try to keep this brief, but this is, this is really uh, interesting to me. Uh, I'm an ethnically Indian 
person who was born in England. Uh, I've lived in three countries for about 10 plus years each. Um, so I've been having a bit of an issue where I must have started off with a certain accent. Uh, it definitely changed as I moved to India and stayed there for about 10 years, trying to, I guess, fit in and not feel too you know, different. Uh, and it's when I came here, I thought maybe I could go back to what my original sounded like without feeling awkward. And I feel like being 10 years here, it's become something else altogether. Hmm. Um, and sometimes I'm not really sure what my original was. And I, tr- I think that's, I mean, I feel natural speaking, but I noticed that from time to time, like even on maybe week to week or day to day, the accent changes. And sometimes I feel uncomfortable in my own mouth when I'm saying certain words or speaking a certain way. Face to face, it might sound different. Just speaking online to people I can't see sounds different sometimes. And I'm, there's a bit of a struggle there, but it's it's hard to figure out what my actual accent should be and how to should I be practicing it? Is should it be natural somehow? It's confusing. Uh, I, so, I so hear you, and thank you for sharing that. You know, it's such a great example for all of us of our voice story, of the fact that our lives are actually reflected in our voice, including the ways in which we don't know where we belong anymore, or that perhaps when you go home, you feel so other compared to the people who never left. And that is actually... I have discovered from working with as many people as I have, such a human experience. I mean, you know, it's more pronounced when you're talking about different countries. But for all of us, we sound like home when we start out and then we leave. And then we got by in that room of power. And then we figured out how to be likable in that room or how to get taken seriously in that room or how to seem smart or how to seem charming or how to seem you know, worthy of promotion. And each of those rooms that we've been in since we left home have affected us. And now we have this voice. That's a combination of all the habits, all the micro adjustments we've picked up, plus the things we've been determined to hold on to, plus who we've dated or spent, you know, a massive amount of time with. And that, Vikram, is who we sound like. That is us. And every single one of us, through that lens, sounds different from every single other person on earth. The word in linguistics is idiolect, I-D-E-O, idiolect. It means (laughs) that we're unicorns, right? It means that actually, if our life experience is reflected in our voice, no one else has our voice. To get to the point of finding your authentic voice, if you need to find it, and not in the cliched way, um, is it... As simple as first thinking about what you love most about it? Uh, It's a way. I was just realizing I I spelled it wrong. I-D-I-O, idiolect. Yeah, you know, I like like helping people remember that um, they can catch themselves when they're having like an urge to communicate around their favorite people. The example I love to give is when you're... (laughs) And you're talking to a friend or, you know, a partner or whatever, and you're like, I can't believe who I just ran into at Starbucks. I can't believe who I just saw at Trader Joe's. I haven't seen them since. Who's that version of you? How much pitch range does that person have? How much does that person swear? How much does that person say like? That's instructive, right? It's not always one-to-one. Okay, that version of me that tells a story in that Uh, extremely comfortable moment is the same version of me that should show up when I win (laughs) a Grammy. 
But maybe. Because that version of you is in the moment, is present, is emotionally available, is talking about what matters to you like it matters to you, and is deeply, I'm going to guess, lovable. Well, Emily writes, as a woman with a naturally low voice, but a hyper-feminine body, I've been trained to make my pitch higher, to be less direct, to be less, quote, aggressive. I find my voice getting higher in pitch over the day when working, and it is exhausting. Mm. <laughs> Kate in Berkeley writes, I still say like way too much, and I've noticed it popping up when I listen back to work presentations and recorded meetings. It sounds horribly unprofessional. What can I do to finally shake this verbal tick? Well, I guess in Kate's case, she, Kate feels like it's not working for them. Yeah. Um, so it's not serving them, I guess, to yeah. use some of the language that you were saying before. So, so what advice would you give Kate on shaking this verbal tick in Kate's words? Um, I'm curious about practicing a little bit more I'm, for her. I'm curious about um, noticing, you know, often when we use like a lot, I'll say two things. One is all of you Google this amazing uh, piece by Amanda Montel uh, from her book, Word Slut. It's all over the Internet on the six different um, meanings of like. It's actually a homonym. It's six different words waltzing around in our mouth, uh, confusing literally everybody. So that's... That's an interesting place to start. Uh, in terms of using it maybe the same way frequently, using it when you're meaning uh, a pause. So you say, this is like really interesting. <laughs> that, I think recording yourself like you did, Kate, I think, uh, is useful. And then being extremely compassionate but discerning. Right. If you can bring the compassion in, it will help with making the change. But the discernment of when do I tend to do that? Was it at that point where I was unsure or I was being questioned or there was an element of hostility in the space? Or wasn't it? Because I bet it was in that realm. And so then it's a question of sort of the inside out approach, some mindset work around permission, because I've noticed I say um and like less when I really know what I have to say, and I know that it matters. Interesting. Samara Bay wants us to change our assumptions about what power and authority sound like. Samara, thanks so much for talking with us today. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Samara Bay. Her book is Permission to Speak. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. And as always, thank you, listeners, for sharing your voice stories, your experiences with us. We are here with you always. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.